This morning, if you would, turn with me back to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, the Lord Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. He says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Here in this portion and the next portion of Matthew chapter 5 is some of the hardest uh, instruction to comply with as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I hope that we all, I, I trust we find it a lot easier than this to not commit adultery. Um, I hope that we're able to keep our word. Um, and all the things that we've looked at up to this point, not to say that it's always easy to deny the flesh and those things, um, I hope we find it easier than what we see here. But what the Lord here begins to tell us, not only in this portion, but in the next, of how we're to deal with insults against us, and then also those that would do evil against us in the next portion, the Lord is... Um, it's very strange on the surface what he's telling us here to do. So notice again, he says, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's true. The law did say that in Exodus chapter 21. In fact, as you look in Exodus chapter 21, it says, If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay notices as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And if a man smite the eye of his servant or the eye of his maid that it perish, he shall let him go free for his eye's sake. And if he smite out his manservant's tooth or his maidservant's tooth, he shall let him go for his tooth's sake. So Moses was given commandment by God regarding how crime was to be handled. There's been a change, though, from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus, as we have seen in almost each of these accounts that we've looked at. Notice again that the Lord made it clear that the judges would determine. In Exodus chapter 21, what God is doing is limiting the punishment for crime. He's not saying this has to occur for every crime that happens, but he's saying that the magistrates or the judges, they are limited that the punishment equal the crime. It cannot exceed what the crime was. But by the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jewish people as a whole had taken it from the judge's hands and become, had become vigilantes. They would take care of these matters on their own. They would not take this to court. This would not be done in the city or in the, in the gates of the city, but they were encouraging that if somebody does this, 
then it's your obligation to retaliate in the same fashion. And so the Lord is letting us know that's not the spirit of a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is not saying that there's no occasion that law should not be enforced. Jesus is not advocating that. Again, I've mentioned before, he was not a revolutionary. He was not coming to just overturn every thought and principle found in the Old Testament. No, he was actually coming to restore. He was actually uh, showing uh, the people of his day, this is what God intended when the law was given. This was the heart of God when the law was expressed. Y'all have taken the heart of God out of the law, and that's why the scriptures let us know that the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. And so they've taken the spirit out of the law, and all they're concerned about is the letter of the law, and it was killing, literally in some cases, but it was killing the nation of the way they were looking at the law of God. So again, the Lord is not saying there's no time that crime should not be punished. He obviously believed in the punishment of crime. Note, even in his own life, when he would be tried, he never said you have no authority or no right to try. And even though he had done nothing wrong, and the fact there was no law on any books in Israel or Rome that they could find to charge him with, yet he never questioned the authority of Pilate as a judge. Not one time did he say, you do not have the right as a magistrate to judge people. He didn't say that. Romans, the 13th chapter, makes it very clear that the authorities that exist in government, they are ministers of God. Uh, that just means servant. It doesn't mean, obviously, they're preachers, but they are ministers of God for what purpose? Uh, he says to punish evildoers. So even the Apostle Paul understood that government is mainly instituted for the peace of those who love good and also the punishment of those who would do evil. Again, the Lord is not advocating that crime just go unchecked. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the 8th chapter, in the 11th verse, we find that Solomon says this, because sentence against an evil work is not ex executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So here Solomon lets us know that because a sentence or a punishment against evildoers or those who do wrong uh, is not speedily executed, it's delayed, I mean, think about some of the cases we've heard even in our day of, of a crime that's taken place, how long it takes uh, before a trial actually occurs. And then so the trial occurs, let's say uh, the punishment is the death penalty. I don't remember the average right now that a person spends on death row. It's close to 20 years is the average. Uh, I know this is on a live stream, so it's going out for all to hear. I wouldn't be opposed to returning to the day uh, of uh, the late uh, middle to late 1800s when a crime occurred, uh, a man was tried, uh, sentence was carried out within about a day or two. Uh, individuals murdered somebody. What happened? Uh, he goes before a judge. If there was a jury, then a jury. He's tried. He's sentenced. And normally the next day or maybe the day after, he was hung. Uh, now, I realize that there's mistakes made in courts of law, and so there needs to be perhaps time for appeals, 
Uh, but I think it ought to be greatly limited than what it is today. And Solomon here says, because uh, sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Now, I'm not saying that all of the crime that we see in our nation today is found in that root cause. But I do believe that that is a major contributing factor to a lot of the crime that we see in society today. So here, Jesus is not in contradiction with Solomon. Jesus is not in contradiction with Moses. What the Lord is saying, though, is that y'all have removed this from the hands of the magistrates, from the hands of the judges, and now you're taking it into your own hands. So he says, you have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Notice that he said, I say unto you. Now remember, he has the authority to say what he's saying. He's the son of God. He taught us one who had authority and not as the scribes. So now Jesus says, but I say unto you that you resist not evil. Now again, understand the Lord. He's not here saying that if somebody breaks in your home to do you harm, that you've just got to stand there and take it. He's not saying that. In the, he's letting us know that there are things that are going to offend us. There are things that are going to come against us that are not, they're not going to end our lives. And he says, don't resist. Think about Daniel for a moment. In the sixth chapter of the book of Daniel, when Daniel was so preferred above the other princes of the nation of Babylon, that the only way that they could try to rise above him in rank in the mind of the king, what did they do? They, there was nothing they could find against him. They said, well, the only thing that we can really convict him of is concerning his God. And so they go to the king, as you recall, and they convince the king to pass a law that for 30 days, if anyone was to pray, they could only pray to the king. They couldn't pray to God. They couldn't pray to any other gods. They could only pray to the king. Why did they do that? Because they knew Daniel was a faithful man to God first. He was faithful to, uh, to the king of Babylon, but he was faithful first to God. And they knew that he would break the law of the king. He would follow what Peter would say in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. And so did Daniel resist? Did Daniel go before the king and say, this is completely unfair? Did uh, Daniel protest? Did he uh, take out a sign and begin to pick it? Did he go to the courthouse square and there with a bullhorn uh, uh, offer his prayer so that everyone could hear? That's not how Daniel responded. He didn't resist evil. He didn't speak out against it. He didn't say a word about it. He didn't go before the king and say, this is unjust, even though it was. He could have rightly said to the king in that day, what you have passed is unlawful in the sight of God, and I will not obey this law. He doesn't do any of that. What does Daniel do? The Bible says Daniel did as he had done aforetime. That means Daniel just continued in his life the very same way. He didn't resist evil. That means he didn't go and, and pick it against it, pronounce how horrible that it was. He didn't say, y'all have been unfair to me, and I know what you wicked men have done, that you passed this law, you tricked the king, just so that you could catch me out. He knew what was going on, but what does he do? 
three times a day, just like he'd always done, he goes up to his room, and there he privately prays. Well, obviously, these men are watching out for that. They find out he's doing it, so they report it to the king. You know what the king does? Well, first he realizes, oh, (laughs) what did I do? I've been a fool. I was a fool. I let these men manipulate me and trick me into passing a law for the sole purpose of destroying this faithful man. But what's the law of the Medo-Persians? That once the king pronounces a decree, it cannot be altered. The king himself cannot change it. He's sitting there. His brain is uh, churning. He's sitting, and those men point out the law to the king. You can't change the law. You've already passed it. Even though you were manipulated to do it, it doesn't matter. You have to do it because you've passed the law. And what was the punishment? That anyone who prayed to anybody but the king would be cast into a den of lions. So that's exactly what happens. He's cast into a den of lions. But the providence of God comes and protects that man through the night. And those lions, it was completely against their nature. But it's interesting throughout the word of God how God is able to control the nature of his creation. Uh, There's nothing in creation. Remember this at all times. There is absolutely nothing in creation outside the sovereign power of God. Now I did not say in that statement that everything that happens in creation is because of the sovereign power of God. That's a distinction that needs to be made. But there's absolutely nothing under the sun, under the creation of the creator that's outside his sovereign power. There's things that God actively causes. There's things that God allows and there's things that God suffer in this world. And there's times I do not understand why it is that God suffers certain things to occur. But this I take solace in no matter what is going on in the world around us, whatever is going on in your life or mine, I always want to call to mind that our Creator is able to keep all things from spinning out of control. And that is the thing that keeps me confident and assured as we live in an ever-changing world. Thank God, even though it's an ever-changing world, we serve a never-changing God. And so here, this man, Daniel, uh, he understood uh, that God was in control. It's just like the three Hebrew children that would not bow down. I mean, they resisted evil in this way. They wouldn't do what the evil was. But they didn't speak out against Nebuchadnezzar in the second chapter of the book of uh, Daniel. What did they do? They just said, we're, gonna, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship that thing. We're just not. They didn't go out and protest that it had been built. They didn't go out and picket that it had been raised up. They just said, we're not going to worship it. We're not going to bow down before it. And Nebuchadnezzar gets very angry with them and says, well, you're going to end up in a fiery furnace. Well, so be it. They said, but we know our God is able and of course, he was. They knew that God was able to deliver them out of their, uh, the fire. They said, whether he would or not, they didn't know, but they knew this. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He'll either deliver us through the fire, meaning through death, will be out of your hands, or he'll take us out of the fire and deal with you. But either way, our God will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And God did. Miraculously. There they were in the fire, and what occurred to them? The only thing that happened to them in the fire 
is the bounds or the binds, the chains, the way they had been fettered by the king. In other words, what Babylon had done to them, that was the only thing that was destroyed. Nothing else. Their hair was not singed. Their clothes did not smell of smoke. The only thing that burned off of them were the chains that bound them. And there they were loosed, walking with another who Nebuchadnezzar said was like to the Son of God. So here, that fire didn't hurt them in the least. In fact, the fire freed them from the bondage uh, that the king had put them in. In Daniel's case, what did God do? God just closed the mouths of the lions. All night long, they weren't hungry. Uh, I get the picture from the scene that Daniel had a good night's sleep. (laughs) But I also find that the king did not. The king, he tossed and turned and worried all night long. And as soon as dawn broke, what's he do? He goes right out to that that lion's den. And as he gets to the den of lions there, he calls out, Oh, Daniel, is thy God able to save thee? What does Daniel respond with? Long live the king. In other words, I'm just fine. Everything's okay. So here was a man who could have spoken out, could have told the king, this is just wrong. These men are, all they're doing is plotting against me because I've been faithful to God, but also faithful as a servant to you. And they don't like that you prefer me above them. They should have just been as faithful as Daniel and and they would have gone up in the king's preference as well. But instead, they want to destroy this man. But he didn't resist evil. He just took what came against him. Jesus says, I say unto you that you resist not evil. There are some things that you and I are just to take. Now, that goes against our nature. I I recognize that. In the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, Paul says recompense, that doesn't, he says, in other words, do not repay to no man evil for evil, but provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lieth in you live peaceably with all men. Then he says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. What's our nature when one speaks against us? Or wants to do something again. It's to react. At least in kind. If not more severely. And that's what the Lord is teaching against. He says. Ye have heard. That it had been said an eye for an eye. And a tooth for a tooth. He says. But I say unto you. Resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek. Turn to him the other also. Now smiting on the cheek here. Is. It's like a, it's a backhanded slap, which is a very insulting thing. Now, I don't want to be slapped, and I don't want to be punched. I've never been punched in my life, and I don't want to be. I suspect it hurts. Um, but if somebody's going to do one of the two against me, I'd rather they close their fist and punch me. That's more respectable, at least. Now, a slap is just an insult. Do you remember, I don't know, it's been a couple years ago, when Chris Rock made a joke against Will Smith's wife at one of their award shows, and Will Smith gets up there and slaps him? There was a reason he slapped him instead of punched him. It was to insult him. It was to be an insult. It was meant that way. 
And it was an insult. Now, Chris Rock, I thought, handled it how the Lord would. He just took it and, and smiled and, and went on and, and really wouldn't even speak about it publicly thereafter for a long time. And then when he finally did, he just kind of made a joke about it and moved on. He didn't disrespect the man. And I was quite impressed, in fact, at the way that man, I don't think I would have taken it that way. Had, uh, and I don't know how big Will Smith is. I've never been around him. I might have just taken it, depending on how large he is. But the point is, that man showed us exactly how to take an insult. I was impressed by that. I thought, wow, that was amazing to me. Very few people would have stood there and have taken that. Now, the Lord Jesus did. The Lord, that's exactly what he did. In fact, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he gave his back, the Bible says, to the smiters. And then also his cheek to those that would pluck the hair out of his beard. The Lord Jesus Christ stood there and took things from men that you and I, I know, would never do in our nature. But notice what he says. He says, if someone smites you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In other words, yes, it was an insult. And that's, that's the core of what he's talking about. It's not so much the physical act. It's more about what is driving the act to start with. So someone is insulting you. How well do you take the insult? When somebody speaks something against you that you know is not, it's not true, do you have to respond? You don't have to respond. Turn the other cheek. Just let it go. Um, I have to be reminded of that just like anybody else. Some time ago, I spoke something in a message, and later I tuned into a message of another minister that uh, referred back to something I said in an unkind way, and I started typing a response. I was ready to, to let him have it. And thankfully, Lydia reminded me of the very thing I had just preached that day. It pertained to that, and even just by that evening, I'd already forgotten the things that I had spoken to you, and I... And I thanked her and you know what I let it go and I'm glad I let it go because it would have just stoked a fire that would have caused a problem that would have done no good whatsoever so the key is what well, just all right so I was insulted did it really hurt me my great-grandmother that many of you knew one of the things that helped me a lot and has helped me a lot in life was a very simple piece of advice when I would be upset about something somebody said or did and I would talk to her about it. This is what she would always say to me. I always got the same response. I don't know why I kept telling her. Maybe so I would hear the response. She would always say uh, three little words. Consider the source. And I would do that. And you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know what? I don't really care what that person thinks. They're not important enough to me in this life for me to let this bother me that much. Now, if they were somebody that were very valuable to me in friendship, then I might need to go talk to them about it or set things right or whatever I might need to do. But those little words that she would speak to me have done me tremendous good in my life. Because there's been a lot of times that as I consider the sort, I just think, well, it's just not worth it. There's no reason. I really don't care what they think. And it really hasn't bothered me what they said. I know what my intent was, or I know what I really said, or I know what I really did, and so it really doesn't matter what they might think or say. All too often, we worry too much about what folks think about us or what they might say about us. I can't control what people think about me. 
to a large degree. Now I realize that I shouldn't just uh, behave in a, such a cavalier way when I say, well, I don't care what they think, just do whatever I want to do. That's not the point, that's not what I mean by that. I do want a good reputation, but I want it to be based on good character, not just what people see me do and what they think that I am. I want it to be based on reality that I truly am a good man that's trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. If I'm doing that and you're doing that and we're all trying to please the Lord and other people want to say something negative, don't worry about that. Because you know in your heart you're doing your very best to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that offends them and bothers them, don't worry about it. Obviously, they're a source that's not to be considered. They're a source that really doesn't matter. How many times have people said things again, and you knew better, you knew the truth, you knew your motivation, you knew your heart in the matter, they did not. Just give way to that. Turn the other cheek. It's hard to do, I know. There's been many times that I've wanted to respond and there's been times that I have, either in writing or in word, and every time that I have, in the way that the Lord here speaks, I've always regretted it. Every time I've regretted it. It either stirred something far more that had to be dealt with, or it, it put a, a further barrier between me and that individual. It, it didn't do any good. It didn't honor the Lord, and it didn't repair anything. And so if somebody is insulting you, and you know it's not true, then let it go. Turn the other cheek. Again, it's hard. Again, the Lord isn't necessarily saying if somebody hits you on the right cheek, give him the left, or vice versa. He's basically saying if you're insulted, just let it go. Now then he says, if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, that's the outer garment, thy coat, let him have thy cloak, the inner garment also. In other words, if he's going to sue you, give him more than what he's requested. Now, that's another difficult one. It first tells me that you and I should not that shouldn't be our first response, is that when we're upset with somebody, well, I'm going to sue them. When years, several years ago, we had an event happen, and I was counseled by someone that I ought to hire an attorney and, and sue. And I thought about it for just a, really a split second. So you know what? There's not enough harm here. I'm not going to do that. The folks at fault are doing everything they can to make it right. And so long as they're trying to make it right, then I need to just let that go. Were they in the wrong to start with? Yes. Did I have a case? Probably so. But did they mean to do what was wrong? No. It wasn't malicious. And they did everything they could to make the situation right. So my thoughts were, well, they're doing what they can to make it right. And one of the, do you know why your doctor's bills are so high? <laughs> one of the reasons? And why it costs so much to go to the hospital? Is because so many people are so willing to sue uh, doctors and hospitals over things that really we shouldn't. Now I realize if there's true negligence where it's just somebody just totally doesn't care. Or if there's something done out of maliciousness, 
That's why the law is there. It is for that purpose. Uh, same reason. So right now, and I, I, one of my coworkers that I work with on a regular basis uh, has just gone through about four years or, or five, maybe long, I can't remember, dealing with State Farm Insurance over their roof. Well, Irma happened in, what, 2017? So about six years. Anyway, Irma damaged their roof. They didn't notice it in time for the, for the claim. And so they ended up having to sue the, the company. But one of the things that happened in all that is they signed up with a contractor, and this contractor had an appraiser, a, a private appraiser, and the contract was so bound up that it actually ended up being a violation of law the contract itself, but they end up, well, one of the big reasons that you and I have such high rates of property insurance right now is because of contractors exactly like that man signed up with. State Farm finally settled, gave X amount. That was to fix his roof, the ceiling, stucco. Well, this roofer, he knew exactly what he got it. He wanted the full amount of that settlement and he'd put a roof on. Uh, here was somebody that, and was willing to go to court against this man. People suing over things like this and binding people up into situations like that is costing us all a fortune. Uh, and so, anyway, the Lord here, again, he says, if any man will sue thee out the law. You know the best way to settle that lawsuit? Give the individual what they're asking for and a little more. <laughs> That's what the Lord is here letting us know. He says, if they will require this of you and they're willing to take you to court to, to gain it, then you know what? Let them have it. However, I will say this, and this is a good, I think, time to put this in to them. 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, teaches us specifically about believers and courts of law. Notice this, chapter 6, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, dare any of you. Notice how Paul starts this, dare any of you. Having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church." He says, I speak to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you. No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to, brother, goeth to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. What do you think it does in the minds of the community? If you were to take a brother or a sister to court over a situation. Well, number one, you violated Matthew the 18th chapter. Because in Matthew chapter 18, the Lord Jesus Christ gave us a, a very explicit way in which we're to address when we're offended, when there's something done that's against us. He lays it out in three very easy to follow steps. When I say easy to follow, they're easy to comprehend. It doesn't mean they're always easy to employ. What are you first supposed to do? Go and tell your brother his fault between thee and between you and him alone. He said, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. That's step one. Most of the time, the matter will be resolved right there. He says, if it doesn't, if he does not hear thee, then what are you supposed to do? You're to take one or two with you, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. He says, but if he will not hear them, 
meaning those that go with you in counsel, they observe, they determine the individual's wrong. Then what's to happen? Tell it to the church. That's step three. He says, you tell it to the church. If he will not hear it from the church, let him be to thee as a heathen man and a publican. So here, the Lord Jesus Christ makes it abundantly clear exactly how you and I are supposed to deal with issues that arise between brothers and sisters in the house of God. And so if a member takes another member to law, they have violated the word of God. I believe it's an excludable offense. In fact, in, in fact when individuals go to court for divorce, a lot of times I've watched churches sit back and wait until the matter's all settled, they're divorced, and then when one remarries, that one's excluded. I've often, why wasn't the church involved much sooner? Uh, when someone has filed a divorce uh, suit against another individual in the church, they have violated the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew and they have violated 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and it ought to come before the congregation and that matter ought to be judged and there ought to be discipline extended if need be. So here the apostle, he says, brother, go out to law with brother and that before the unbelievers. He says, now therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law with one another. He says, why do you not rather take wrong? What's he saying? Resist, not evil. He said, just take it. If it can't be settled in Matthew 18 setting, he said, then just take it. He says, why do you rather not take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? He says, but no, you do wrong and defraud and that your brethren. So here Paul makes it abundantly clear that you and I as members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ have absolutely no authority to go to law before going to the church. Now let me say this. There have been occasions when somebody has committed a crime that there has not been time for the church to assemble, to take care of, that ought to be reported to law. There are some few exceptions. But in general, of course, Paul here is talking about generally lawsuits, not criminal case. He says this ought to be dealt with inside the church of God. Why? So that we give no occasion for the wicked and unbelievers of this world to blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ or disrespect the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he says, if someone would sue thee at the law... And take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Then verse 41 says, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, he says, Go with him twain. What the Lord is speaking of here specifically is in the day that the Jews were living, and Jesus is here, they're under Roman control. And if a Roman soldier desired, he could just call out a Jew and that Jew was responsible to carry his baggage, his gear, whatever, a mile. You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was going to Golgotha? He, find, he, he stumbled under the weight of the cross. They compelled one named Simon. And he helped the Lord bear the cross up to Calvary. The Romans had that authority. They could do that. But only one mile. So Jesus says, so here you are under Roman control. And imagine these Jews who are now on this, 
uh, in this field, this grass. They're listening to Jesus as he's sitting on the side of a mountain. They hate being under Roman control. They despise the Romans. You think Matthew the Apostle was respected among those that heard him preach? Not to begin with. Why? Because he was a tax collector, a Jewish individual who had sold out the Jews to collect collect taxes for the Roman Empire. They despised individuals that would join themselves in league with the Romans. And generally speaking, the Pharisees and Herod and others, they would not join with the Romans until it benefited them. But here the Lord Jesus Christ is telling a group of Jews, probably mostly commoners, that uh, they also despised. Many of them, I'm sure, had been compelled by Roman soldiers uh, to carry uh, their equipment, their baggage, their luggage, whatever, a mile. And here they are, and Jesus says, if somebody uh, compels you to go a mile, I want you to go too. (laughs) Can you imagine? I'm sure some sitting there, wait just a minute. (laughs) I've had to do that before. That wasn't a pleasant task. But did it hurt you? Did it really hurt? Yeah, it demeans you a little bit to go an extra mile. Have you, ever, you know, we have that saying, go the extra mile. That comes from this verse. Go the extra mile. That's what Jesus is saying. If he compels you to go one. And generally when a Roman was doing that, he was showing an insult, a disrespect to that Jew. So what was the best way to potentially turn the Roman's heart towards that Jew to agreeably go a second mile? When you get to the end of a mile, tell that soldier, you know what, I'll be happy to carry this for you another mile if you would like. What do you think that would do to the heart of that Roman soldier? Well, number one, he would be shocked that somebody would volunteer to go an additional mile than what the law required. And so... First, it would just be, uh, he would be confounded by that. And then hopefully, and the Lord understands this, by doing that, it might also tender the heart of that individual who has compelled the individual to go a mile. That's the whole point of this Sermon on the Mount, is that the law was giving to govern the heart, and hopefully in keeping the law out of a good heart towards God, might also then tender the hearts of other individuals that would try to use the law against the child of God. And so here the Lord Jesus Christ says, when the Roman uh, centurion, when the Roman soldier, or whoever it might be, uh, compels you by law to go one mile, I want you to go two. I want you to go above and beyond what the law requires of you. And then he says, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. The Lord is letting us know that we're not to have a spirit of retaliation. That's what this section of Matthew chapter 5 is really dealing with. Bearing griefs, insults, slights, and saying, you know what? The Lord's going to take care of that. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay you know the apostle paul as he was writing timothy in second timothy chapter four he talked about a certain individual he talked about a lot of individuals there but he talks about 16 verse 16 he says he's warning timothy about some folks he says alexander the coppersmith he said he did me much evil he says i pray the lord rewarding according to his works i've always liked paul's statement there 
and not for the reason that's on the surface. On the surface, Paul is saying, God get him. <laughs> I think there's more to what Paul is saying than just that. I think Paul is saying, in my estimation, Alexander did evil. But I'm a human. I might be wrong. Maybe it wasn't evil. Maybe I deserved it. Maybe everything that he did was right, and I judged it wrong. So I'm going to ask the Lord to reward him according to his works. Why? Because I know the Lord knows his heart. I don't. I think I do. I think I knew what he meant. I think he was malicious. I think he did me evil. I think he was altogether wrong, but I'm not infallible in this. God is infallible in judging the hearts, and so I'm just going to turn this matter over to God. I'm going to let God reward him according to his works. If his works truly were evil, then he'll be judged for the evil works. If his works were not evil and I've misjudged him, then the Lord will bless him, and that's okay as well. And that ought to be our attitude when wrong is done against us. Number one, we may be altogether wrong in our uh, thoughts about it. Maybe it wasn't wrong. Maybe the intent was not what we thought it was. Maybe there was not a malicious spirit behind what occurred, even though we think that there may have been. But the Lord, he does know exactly the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. There's nothing that is not naked and open before him with whom we have to do. He understands all of that. And so the prayer that we ought to have when someone does us evil, Lord, reward them according to their works. You know better than I do what they've done and why they've done it. And if it truly was evil, then you take care of it. That's the right spirit to have. That's exactly how we ought to be. You can find all over the word of God where individuals would take out vengeance on their own and it usually would not end well. For instance, in the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis, it says, And Dinah the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. She shouldn't have done that. She goes out to see the daughters of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. But he loves her, and he wants to marry her. And so he begins to talk with the sons of Jacob about how that could be arranged. And two of those, Levi and Simeon, they come up with a plan whereby this can be arranged. They say, well, it's not right. It's, number one, it's unclean for her to be with someone uncircumcised. So, now, here's what would seem just. Number one, she shouldn't marry him to start with. It was against the law. But, okay, if you want to marry her, then <laughs> everyone in the city has to be circumcised. So they go back and they tell the whole city what has to be done. And every male of the city, they're circumcised. Now, Simeon and Levi, they have no plans for their daughter to marry this man. They have a plan in place. They have revenge in their hearts. It says the third day when the men of the city were sore, um, they came in and with a great slaughter, they slew the men of that city and they took the spoils they took the goods they took the animals they took all of that 
You know what Jacob would say about that as he was dying in the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis? He says this, he says, Simeon and Levi, our brethren, instruments of cruelty, are in their habitations. He says, O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. What's he mean by that? He means here they tore down what could have been a blessed league, but they put me in danger because in their anger they slew a man. They actually slew a lot of men all out of revenge. That's not saying what they did to Dinah was right, but there was a way that that could have been addressed and the way that those two men did it was not the right way. All over the word of God, you'll find where individuals went to extreme limits uh, uh, to make sure that their vengeance was taken out. But that's not what the word of God commands you and I. The word of God is abundantly clear that it's not our responsibility to mete out judgment against those who would uh, do us personally wrong. Uh, In those cases, obviously, yes, we can go to them and speak to them about that. But just like the Apostle Paul said, Lord, I want you to reward him according to his works. Paul wasn't going to go out and find Alexander and say, you've done me this wrong, and here's the punishment I think you're worthy of. He says, no, I don't know exactly what his heart was. I'm going to entrust that to God to take care of. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no judgment ever to be made. That doesn't mean that there's not ways in which crimes and wrongs are to be handled and settled. Jesus is not again saying here that let any person do anything they want to do and there's no repercussions. That's not the point. The point is, is when there's insults that come against us, when there's slights that come against us, when men would try to offend us, when they would try to insult us, when they would try to demean us, what are we supposed to do in those events? Let the Lord handle that. Let the God of all truth uh, look down upon that scene and let him handle it. I promise you, when God intervenes and when God exacts vengeance against that wrong, it will be far more effective than anything you could ever do against that individual. You may stoke the flames. You may create a bigger situation. Uh, you, you, you're probably not going to resolve it. You're probably not going to let it end peaceably. Uh, that's why Paul tells us there in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans that we're to, uh, as much as life in us, live peaceably with all men. As much as life in us, how much lies in you? How much do you love the peace of God? And how much do you love dwelling in peace with the people of God? Well, Paul says, as much as life in you. You know, earlier in that chapter, chapter 12, he lets us know that when God deals with us, he gives us all the exact same measure of faith. So if you see somebody that's very peaceable and they're able to withstand insult and they do so effectively, you've got the same ability that person has. They say, well, it's just not in my nature to do that. No, it's not in your nature to do that. It's not in their nature either. But they also are partakers of the divine nature and so are you. And it's in God's nature to bear insult. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ for a moment. The Bible lets us know that he was made the song of the drunkards. When people would gather in taverns in Jesus' day, they would, they would sing songs about him. And you know what they were singing? They were making fun of the account of his virgin conception. When word went out that a virgin conceived, the drunkards, they thought, that's, that's just too, too much to believe. 
And so they literally made up songs in the taverns and, and made him the insult of those songs. There's a reason that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, who when reviled, he reviled not again. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. How did Jesus respond? He committeth himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus did as Paul did in 2 Timothy 4. Jesus just commended that to God. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously. And that's exactly what you and I ought to do when there are insults that come our way. We're going to be insulted. That's the reality. We're going to be offended. We're going to feel like folks have slighted us. It's going to occur. Uh, I don't care if you're five years old, 50 years old, or 90 years old. There's going to be times you feel insulted, and maybe truly are. But the way according to the Lord Jesus Christ is not an eye for an eye. It's not, well, they said this about me, so let me respond in kind. No, it's committed to the Lord who judges faithfully. Give it to the one who understands the heart of that individual far better than you ever could. And the one that, if they're wrong, can exact vengeance in a way that will be far more effective than any vengeance you could ever mete out. I have witnessed in my own life the hand of God come down against someone that had done me wrong and I followed the word of God and it was amazing to see how that worked out. Some now are actually dear friends and it's amazing because how the Lord dealt with it, we could be friends now. If I had dealt with it, I'm certain we'd still be enemies. But the Lord, you know, the Bible says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. So make sure your ways please the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully your enemies will be at peace with you. May God bless you today as our prayer.